Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our second study and a, a select look at uh, a variety of psalms over the next couple of months. Last week, Lucas uh, did a great job of presenting Psalm chap or, uh, Psalm 1. It's uh, a wonderful psalm and I think one of my favorites. And Psalm 2, when I put my name down for Psalm 2, I wasn't particularly familiar with it, and I thought that was a good thing. I'll... Uh, lots to dig into here, and, and it was certainly a joy to look through it and, and uh, find out a bit more um, what the Lord is saying in it. So as I did that, obviously I read it through lots of times, and, and after reading it through a number of times, I came to understand that it, it can really be uh, looked at or understood on a number of different levels. And I think, first of all, the psalm can really be uh, understood uh, as really the reality of the world from Adam to Armageddon. Um, as we review what's happened in the past, as we see what's happening right now, and as we look to what is going to happen in the future, uh, there really is a worldwide rebellion against God and that this world is, is a battleground. Satan is currently the god of this world. We're told that in Scripture, and, and we see that around us. And he and everyone else who doesn't, doesn't know the Lord as Savior is really set up in this uh, battle against the Lord God. And they may knowingly know this, but perhaps they unknowingly, this is the case. We can see it, secondly, as a messianic psalm pointing to the sonship of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And thirdly, we could see it as an eschatological psalm where uh, it speaks of the final judgment of the Lord Jesus. We know that we now see him as the Lamb of God who's, who takes away the sin of the world, but at a future time, he is going to be the righteous judge uh, who will come and judge the world in justice. And as this psalm talks about, with an, with an iron scepter. So it's interesting to see it from uh, these three perspectives. Perhaps less obvious, but what was pointed out uh, in a number of commentaries that I read is that the psalm uh, is spoken of or spoken from or by three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll let you be the judge on that, but that's I, I, I kind of agreed with that. The Holy Spirit is the narrator of the psalm, and it's almost like uh, he is a commentator looking down from a press box of heaven and commentating on some of the, the events that are happening in the world. He's the one who speaks in uh, from verse 1 to 5. And then in verse 6 and 7, it's God making a proclamation about who Jesus Christ is. And then verse 8 and 9, it's the Lord Jesus stating what his heavenly Father has spoken to him about. And then at the end of the, of the psalm, we see the Holy Spirit again commentating to the inhabitants of the earth as to what our attitude and behavior should be like. 
and how we be, will be we will be blessed if we bow our knee to the Lord. So I'm going to read the psalm through, and then we'll continue on. But I'm going to pray and ask uh, for again help. Father, we pray that uh, as I speak tonight, as I bring forth some thoughts on this psalm, that you would guide and direct those thoughts. I pray, Father, that uh, what I say would be rightly dividing your word and, and uh, that it would uh, be helpful to us and encouragement and, and uh, give us uh, further understanding of you and your word. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have Psalm chapter 2 or uh, Psalm 2 open, I'm going to read it through and I'm going to kind of stop and just comment on when it seems is the Holy Spirit speaking and then and then God and the Lord Jesus. So we start off with the Holy Spirit. It says, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, and now God is saying this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Now Jesus is saying that he said to me, God said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And finally, the Holy Spirit commentating again, saying, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we'll start and begin by looking at the first three verses. And this really sets the stage of this battle that I sort of mentioned at the beginning, where God and his anointed one are on one side of the battleground and all those who oppose him on the other and it speaks of the nations the people of the earth the kings and rulers so essentially everybody who is not has not bowed the knee to the lord who doesn't know the lord on one side um, and the lord on the other and as we know the kingdom of satan the kingdom of this world is satan and so every unbeliever, whether they realize it or not, is lined up in opposition to God. And a verse in Ephesians 1 speaks of this, or Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read that. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Paul there is making it clear that, you know, prior to coming to know the Lord, we are on the other side, as it were. And we're essentially at war with God. 
So the battle at first is perhaps less conspicuous, um, but at a later date, we, we read in scripture that it will be a real and fierce face-to-face -face battle with the devil, his angels, and all those who oppose God facing off um, in battle, the battle of Armageddon, and the Lord will end up destroying all those who not, do not bow the knee to his rule. Now we're gonna discuss that a little bit more later. It's interesting in that those first few verses, it talks of how God's creation has been determined to throw off the chains and fetters. Chains we're familiar with, fetters are just those clamps that go around the ankle of a prisoner, um, that they see God has placed on them. And mankind has really perceived them as something, you know, negative in the sense that, that's, that it has restricted them and their freedom to do what they want, where they want, and how they want. And so, really, mankind has failed to see these things as God's gracious provision of boundaries or, or restraints that would keep us from harming ourselves. And as I got thinking about this, it's really amazing how this has been the case throughout history. We see it in the past, we see it today, how God or mankind has worked hard at breaking free from these chains or fetters that um, are really good things, but have been perceived to be a negative thing. And I, I've jotted down a few for consideration. The word of God says, in the beginning, God, and mankind has said, in the beginning, there was nothing. God's word says, in the beginning, God created, and that has been changed to, in the beginning, the Big Bang. In the beginning, or so the other, another thing is God created them male and female. And that has been changed to humans are born, male, female, binary, transgender, etc. Another one, sin came into the world through the sin of Adam, and therefore we are now each born sinful. That has been changed in many ways to humans are essentially good people that can be corrupted perhaps by the world. Humans were created to glorify God, we're told in Scripture. And that's been changed to humans are here to please themselves. Another one, God designed procreation to occur within the confines of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. And humans have decided that procreation should be able to happen without such restrictions. We could go on and on, I think, to see how so many of these things that God spoke or told or put in place for our own good and protection have been thrown off um, over, over time and continue to, be, to, to do so. I think even as Christians, we can uh, do similar things when we are heeding the old nature. We perhaps, well, we know that we're told to forgive, but we may want to harbor bitterness. We're, we're told to show mercy, but we may want to to judge others instead. 
this past weekend, a particular Mark, when he spoke, was very clear on this, but it's amazing to me that the Messiah came full of mercy, grace, and truth. He came offering the beautiful kingdom of God to take the burden of our, uh, our sins away and to give us eternal life. And we could have expected that Jesus would have been welcomed with open arms uh, given this and that people would have accepted him as savior, accepted him as their king. But we know exactly the opposite happened. He was rebuffed, he was shunned, that for some it was just too inconvenient to accept what he was saying and they ignored him, but many others down and outright hated him and nailed him to a cross. And despite Jesus showing his legitimacy to the throne by all the things that he did and the way he carried himself and acted, um, he was hated and he was not given his rightful place. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for that. Certainly, Jesus proclaimed that man was sinful and needed a savior and that he was the only way to God. And that took humility and uh, and people simply weren't willing to accept that. Mankind didn't want the authority that he brought to rule over them and so rejected him for that reason. Certainly the religious leaders who interacted with Jesus were jealous of him and his per perfect holiness because it made their righteousness look so filthy. And what I'm getting uh, to here is really comes out in Acts chapter 4, and Peter quotes verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4, and how he explains how these verses were really fulfilled in his presence as he walked with the Lord, and then the Lord was uh, taken to the cross and crucified. And really saw how the, were, the, the nations conspire and they plotted evil. And uh, he experienced that in a very real way. How Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Israelites, all of them were involved in taking him and nailing him to the cross. And I think these same reasons exist, exactly the same reasons really, why people reject the Lord today. So if we move on from those first three verses to verses four to six, these verses are really talking about how ridiculous it is for the nations, the people, the kings and the rulers to conspire against God and to be in rebellion against him. And scholars would, uh, would say that they describe God's, God in anthropomorphic terms, which really just describing him in human terms that we can understand. It talks about how he laughs and scoffs at them. And I'm not sure we should take that literally, but it's really saying if we thought something was completely ridiculous, we would laugh and scoff at somebody su suggesting or doing such things. And so God um, sees these things as absolutely ridiculous and completely futile, as it would suggest in these verses. And his response is anger. And as we know with God, 
His anger is all, always a, an expression really of his righteousness. God's anger is perfect, and he has every right to be angry at this response to him. In verse 6, we have uh, uh, the proclamation of God. Verse 6 again says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is, you know, a firm proclamation that hasn't happened, yet it's spoken of in the, in the present tense. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I think the reason for that is it's absolutely certain. God, when he has ordained something, this was spoken of uh, since the beginning of time, that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be ordained king and he would rule and so it's completely firm and final. And it was certainly set out in the Old Testament. We see that in various places in the Old Testament. And there's many of them, but I'll read Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4 says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So, although Christ has yet to take his rightful throne, we know that that is firm and final and will happen. As we know, we're living in a day, a day and age of grace. Just to, I'm sure we all agree, but 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this psalm, as well as, as uh, many other so passages in Scripture, tells us that this is not always going to be the case, is it? Um, and a plan has been carefully laid out for the future. And... This verse 6 makes that clear. God saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so this is something to come in the future. Now, that can be seen as a proclamation of what happened at the cross of Calvary. I think in many ways, that was the victory won. And, and we can see it as a fulfillment of that prophecy in to a certain degree but certainly it speaks to the second coming of christ when he will make and finally make uh, or take his rightful place on the throne now at the end of the great tribulation and just before the second coming of christ satan and all those aligned with him will unite in an attempt to really prevent the Lord from taking his rightful throne. And we read about that in Revelations 19. And I'll read a, a passage from Revelations 19. <clears throat> it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then it says here, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is just one of a couple of places in Revelation where that term iron scepter is used. And, it, and that rod or is a rod of authority, which is used to crush uh, the enemies of God and all things that are evil. And it's also a rod of justice. And it's used to dispense and punish all those to, who refuse to bow the knee to the rightful king. Now, there's a few other places in the Old or New Testament where the second psalm is also quoted. And they help us to get, again, get a, give us a better understanding of its meaning. And one I just want to refer to is in Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. And here Paul is spoke, speaking to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch, and he quotes... Um, Psalm 2, and says specifically, you are my son, today I have become your father. And so Paul is specifically saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse. And I think, again, we can see that fulfillment on a few levels. We know that Jesus always has been the son of God, but that phrase today um, Today you have become, sorry, we've got a, today I have become your father, sorry, um, is, is fulfilled in a few different ways. So when Jesus appeared on this earth, he was manifest to the world in a, in a new uh, way. So he was always the son of God. But when he came to this earth, there was a new, I think, a new facet to the relationship between God and Jesus. And then I think even further so when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and was resurrected, there was a further fulfillment of that statement. And then I think even more finally, when Jesus Christ takes the, the throne the final fulfillment of that father-son relationship will be fulfilled in its finality. So the last verses of Psalm 2 conclude with a stern warning, and then followed by an opportunity for blessing. <clears throat> Verses 8 and 9 makes it very clear that judgment is coming. It says we need to be wise and be warned. How can we be ready for this judgment that is coming, that we know is coming? It says we should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We should be giving him full, the full respect he deserves. 
and to really, I think, have a, a reverence for his majesty. Not a, I think, a, a rejoicing that is in a sort of an awe, an awe-bound rejoicing. And then it says we should be giving him, sorry, in verse 12, we are told that we should be, we should be kissing the son. And that really speaks to paying homage or honor to the son of God. If we're not honoring the son of God, then we're not honoring God either. And John 5, 23 tells us just that. It says, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And that final verse of Psalm 2, where it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him, has some real strong parallels with the book of John, John 640, where Jesus says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at that last day. So the blessing here is that is on anyone who takes refuge in the Lord. And when we look to Jesus as our savior, we are taking refuge in him. We're really saying that we can't stand God's judgment and we need to, we need something uh, to stand between us and God. And Jesus Christ has done just that. He has stood on the cross, taking that judgment that was rightfully ours. And so the judgment of God no longer falls on us. We've taken refuge in him. We've, we are in Christ as believers in what he did for us. And so we will not see judgment and we will be raised from the dead just as he was. So maybe just a few items of, of review, some take home thoughts from the passage. I think one is that we shouldn't ever be lulled into a position of naivety. There is a real battle going on in this world today. And it has been ongoing. We see that it's continuing. And the world is certainly throwing off these chains and fetters that God has graciously placed on us. But as Christians, we need to see these chains and fetters as not chains and fetters, but arms of protection around us, as it were, that are preventing us from being harmed by the things of the world and that we should live under these protective boundaries so that we can flourish in our Christian lives. Just seems to me so many, even Christians are throwing off some of these uh, protective boundaries and not wanting to live under them and seeing them as, I guess, chains and fetters and things that are unpleasant, but they are there really for us to flourish under. A second thing is that we serve a good and loving God who hates sin and will judge the world. And 
God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And we have to understand and know that. And there won't be peace on this earth until all sin and rebellion is done away with. And although we're not wanting God's destruction of people when they choose to reject uh, God's gift, then ultimately there's no choice in God's perfect justice. So there will be, um, there will be God's final judgment. And this is something that we should look forward to from the standpoint, it's not until then that we will be living at peace and under perfect rule. And that rule is the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing is we should be comforted that the war, those that war against uh, God will not win and that he will one day take his rightful throne and be the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and be just so thankful that we have, we have that refuge to take from this world that uh, wars around us and, and who uh, is set up against God. And we can be so thankful that we won't ever face that fearful wrath of a holy God because Christ faced it for us. And we can just praise his name for that. So many good and wonderful things from this psalm, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. So thank you.